0: Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and we have a lollapalooza of a show today, even though it's, you know, being done in these no-travel times. But we're going to take you to the other side of the world, and we're also going to talk about air transportation with a man who knows about it. Before I get to that, I want to give a coming attraction for what we have on Fromers.com in the next week to a week and a half. And I got to say, we're going to publish what may be the most exciting article we've ever published. Why? Because we have a good dozen authors on this piece, each contributing one chunk of the piece. And among those authors, we have Pulitzer Prize winning authors. We have folks who have written bestsellers that have been turned into movies. I'm talking multinational best-selling novels. We have boldface names who have been at the forefront of important social movements. It's an incredibly exciting article. The way to see it go to Fromers.com or better yet, subscribe. You can do that by going to Fromers.com, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S, and then just uh, scrolling down the page and you'll find the subscribe box. Okay, let's get to the show. Our second guest is one of my favorite people ever. She and I work together most summers at the Cordy Madera Book Passage Travel Writers Conference. Her name is Linda Watanabe McFerrin. We're going to be talking about Greece with her. But first, I have Bob Vanderlinden, who is the curator of air transportation and special purpose aircrafts at the museum that gets more visitors than any museum on the planet. I'm talking about the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Let's get started with Bob. Hey Bob, thank you for appearing on the Fromer Travel
1: Show. You're quite welcome. Happy to be here.
0: So, uh, for those listening in, here's how this interview is going to go. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on at the Smithsonian right now, and then I'm going to ask some burning questions that actually Fromer's readers prepared for Bob. I went onto social media. I went onto Twitter. You can follow us at @Fromers asked what people wanted to know. And I got a bunch of great questions for them. But let's start first with the Smithsonian. Right now, the yeah. museum
1: is closed uh, for a variety of reasons, actually. Obviously, COVID-19 has closed everything for health reasons. But the downtown museum has been closed for about a year or so. Our uh, Hazi Museum out at Dulles Airport has been open, which is great. Uh, but the downtown museum has been closed because we are completely rebuilding it from the inside out it was a 40 year old building. And as we used to joke, it was built on time and under budget, which meant the ceiling (laughs) leaked and a lot of the mechanicals didn't work as well as they could have, but you know, it came in on time and under budget and you know, you get what you pay for. Anyway, I love the building. I spent my entire career there. I love it dearly, but yes, the ceiling leaked and among other things. So we got two processes going on downtown. One is called revitalization when we were completely repairing and enhancing the building, you know, 21st century glass that will block all the ultraviolet lights. A uh, new and improved HVAC system, oh. obviously fixing the leaks. Uh, we're completely recladding the building in in marble. Um, the old marble. Will
0: the exhibitions be very different? To, oh, uh, you know what people experience.
1: The exhibitions. That's that's the second part of the of the project. Revitalization fixes the building, mm-hmm. and, but we what we call transformation is going to either rehab or. Com- Completely uh, create new exhibits in our twenty-two exhibition halls. Wow. The old favorites will be back. You know, uh, milestones will be there. Uh, America by Air will be there. That's my gallery. Uh, the Wright Brothers will be there. But all of which will be reinterpreted. And then we have a whole huh. host of new. Well, we got a World War One and World War Two gallery, but that be reinterpreted. New exhibits, new aircraft. Uh, same with our space side. Just it's going to be very, very nice. Apollo Eleven gets its very own gallery now.
0: And let me just say to all our listeners, there is construction going on in my apartment building. <laughs> it's it's a work from home time. So if that's what you're hearing in the background, I'm hoping it. I don't think it sounds too bad, but I just it's it's not something inside your brain as you're listening to this podcast. It's actually in the air here. Well, I have so, to give- sorry,
1: Bob. No, no. I, I also have to warn them. That I've got construction going on in front of my house. They're digging up my tree, <laughs> putting down new storm drains. And they've been doing that for a yeah. month now. And they start at seven o'clock in the morning with the backhoe. Oh, so, my
0: goodness. Well, we got to be happy that people are working. That's absolutely. not a given and, these know, days. Um, so, yes. When it
1: rains from now on, uh, my street won't be flooded, and I can't argue about it.
0: Yay. That. All right. I want to get to some of the questions that okay. our followers on social media gave us. What do you think was the most influential aviation innovation, and do you have that on display?
1: Ooh, yeah. Um. That's no, that's say, that's a broad
0: it, question. It's very yeah. broad.
1: There is not one innovation. Obviously, the most important was the was the invention of the airplane, and that's the Wright brothers. Sure. And we have their very first airplane on display, the nineteen oh three Wright Flyer. wasn't a very good airplane, uh, but it worked. It flew, <laughs> and they you know, they flew under control. That was the key to the to the problem. They solved the problem. It took them only four years to solve it—a problem that you know very well educated people tried hard for decades to solve and couldn't do it. Sure. And these.
0: When you say it wasn't a very good airplane, does that mean it's hard to uh, conserve? Uh, what was it made of? What what were the materials?
1: Oh, it's made out of wooden wood and um, cotton fabric. I mean that the next 20, 30 years, most aircraft were built that way. It just um, didn't fly all that well. It was underpowered and uh, the aerodynamics weren't really great. They fixed it by 1905 when they built the 1905 flyer, which we do not own. That's in Dayton, Ohio. It could fly until it ran out of gas. And that's a true remarkable benchmark. It doesn't sound so impressive, but you know they could take it off and just fly right, left go wherever they wanted to until they ran out of gas. That's phenomenal. And that was 19- Well,
0: speaking of running out of, yeah, speaking of running out of gas, what, I mean, now is the time when we want to be burning far less fossil fuels. So we did get a, a question, what does the future hold, do you think, in terms of renewable energies, in terms of different technologies to make flying a greener process?
1: That's another really good question. Um,
0: <laughs> we have smart we have smart followers. From yes, us, I, I know there are a
1: lot of uh, people actively looking into that, particularly alternative fuels, uh, particularly um, electric energy. The problem is, if you wish to move large numbers of people long distances and uh, do so affordably, right now the current generation of fossil fuels is the best way of doing it Uh, i'm not saying it's the cleanest way but if you if you're trying to move 200 300 people at a time you know, 6,000 miles, 3,000 miles, 10 15,000 miles. The current version of uh, subsonic jets is the most efficient way of doing it.
0: I you had know? heard oh, that there was a plane. I had heard there was an experimental plane. I think it was out of one of the German universities that did manage to run on solar power. I mean, it was a tiny plane and it didn't go that far. Uh, but how uh, but I think the problem was the weight of the machines that allowed it to run on solar power was so heavy uh, that that it had to be small and and couldn't go that far.
1: At present, um, there there are two significant problems with using uh, solar power for aircraft. One is they have to turn propellers. And Uh, by that very nature, that limits their speed. Um, a, A modern jet flies between 500 and 600 miles an hour. Propeller driven aircraft are limited by aerodynamics to about 400 450 miles an hour. And electrical powered aircraft have, so far have not come anywhere close to that. The other thing is they have to carry a, um, a sizable load, a payload, basically, in this case, passengers or cargo. Uh, right. And in aircraft design, unlike the design of, well, it's, it, it's true for anything you design as well, but it's, it's critical in aircraft, and that is weight. And the problem with solar power or battery uh, powered aircraft is the weight of either the solar panels or of the batteries. And uh batteries are very heavy. And the solar power mm. part is heavy as well. So you gotta deal with that. You also have to make a structure large enough, especially solar power, that generate enough electricity to drive the motors with sufficient power to carry a payload and carry it. Yes, you you know, long as the sun's out, you have unlimited power then but then how do you fly at night? Right. Sure. Requires batteries. Batteries mean weight. And as I said before, weight is the enemy of all aircraft.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. What about looking at some of the things that are are done as a standard now? I got one uh, question which just made me laugh out loud. They said, Why are flight attendants still announcing how to use the seatbelt at the beginning of the uh, of their speech? Because at that point, everybody has their seatbelt on uh, and it's not that hard to use. Why do they do that still?
1: Well, one, it's the law. They have to make these announcements. And I'm sure that on every flight there are people who still don't know how to do it or don't care to do it. <laughs> and it's, uh, um, it's a legal requirement and it's also um, a, just a, a smart thing to do to remind people to do it. And those who are, aren't paying attention. And as you look around the cabin, most people are not paying attention, which by the way, drives flight attendants crazy because huh. their purpose to be in that cabin is to keep you safe. And if you're not paying attention, you're not, you're not helping them in the least and they're doing it for you, but it's uh, well, no, but here, um, it, it, Some people just, they don't know how Right,
0: right. I mean for me the personal thing that I always do is I always count the number of seats between myself and the emergency exit just in case there was some kind of emergency and I needed to feel my way out of the plane. That's that's what I do. I don't know is that is that just me being superstitious or is that a good idea?
1: Well actually that's you being smart and I think most of the passengers don't do that. If you listen to the announcements they say you know please find you know the nearest exit. And look behind you because that nearest exit actually may be behind you. And yeah, in the case, what you're doing, uh, counting the number of rows, if the lights go out, it's at night, the airplane goes down. Uh, it's it's you know, there's there's smoke in the cabin. You can't see anything. You'll be able to count how many rows till you get to this. That's very smart. I hate oh, to no say, most passengers <laughs> aren't paying attention and they should. A- absolutely. Down. All right.
0: Another question. and This one comes from me. I remember I'm a I'm a mother. And so and I'm also a travel writer. So my kids have traveled a lot. And when the younger one was maybe four or five, she said that she wanted to go to the bathroom all alone uh, in the plane. And I thought, OK, I'll let her. Go to the bathroom. Uh, she comes screaming out of the bathroom because the flushing toilet was so insanely loud. Why does it have to be that loud? It, it terrified her, and I and I've noticed that it just it just it's almost like an explosion in there sometimes. The sound of it.
1: Uh, what you're hearing is 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 a vacuum. It's suction. Uh, it's a yes. It's a toilet, but it's not one like you have at home. It, it, it's got a bowl, but the bowl is not full of water. I mean, last thing you want on an airplane is, you know, water sitting there sloshing around and spilling out. So um, the bowls there and all that, uh, once you do your business, you hit the you, you flush it. A valve opens, a flap opens, and it is literally sucked by vacuum out from the bowl of the toilet into a storage tank.
0: Is the storage tank very far away? Is that why it has to be such a great force to pull pull everything out?
1: Well, it, it has to have, it, it has to be strong enough to remove the waste. And you know where the tank is. There usually, you know, restrooms in the, in the front of the airplane, in the back of the airplane, sometimes in the middle of the airplane. So it has to be you know uh, strong enough to uh, pull it from wherever the airplane, is, wherever the toilet is on the airplane.
0: Right. Well, staying in the toilet. Not that we want to do that for this whole conversation. <laughs> <laughs> But you, the reason I found out about you was you had a a column or you were asked a question in the recent Smithsonian Magazine about why there are still ashtrays in some planes in the toilet area when that's been illegal to, to smoke on board a plane for so long.
1: Well, just because it's illegal doesn't mean people don't try to do it. Now, they can't get away with it inside the cabin because the flight attendant's eyes are watching. So some people think they're very clever. They'll go go to the bathroom and light up a cigarette. Well, that sends off alarms and they get found almost immediately. But they don't seem to think that's going to happen. But once you do that, you got to put the cigarette out somewhere. So that's why that's there. So they it so it's still there. there. Yeah,
0: for the people breaking the rules, they're they're
1: <laughs> well, you can't well, put right. it out anywhere because you know you're in an airplane, and uh, the last sure. thing you want is an open flame in the airplane.
0: Right. That's true. All right. Well, we got one also from a movie buff, apparently. Uh, They asked you to weigh in on which movie has the best or most accurate representation of somebody being a pilot. Oh, gosh.
1: Well, this is an older movie. And I say this because of my professional interest. But Jimmy Stewart's uh, Spirit of St. Louis uh, really conveys very, very well what it was like for Charles Lindbergh to fly Across the Atlantic in nineteen twenty seven. Problem is most aviation movies aren't very good. I hate to say it.
0: What do they get wrong? What do they
1: test? Oh, to you screw name up? it. You know, they get the you know it's usually the story's preposterous or just you know, it's not the airplane problem, it's uh, getting the accuracy problem. There's well, I won't call out a movie by name. There's one that's that's dreadful. Actually there are multiple ones. Oh, so, call
0: it out. Call it out. You can't get in
1: trouble. Yeah, well the original Midway was terrible in that they kept mixing. Well, they were looking for different footage, and um, this is supposed to be June 1942, and they had aircraft from the 1960s and 1950s uh, Mm. all mixed in. They had, it's a Navy story, but they had uh, Air Force aircraft in there. They had jets in there at a time when there were no jets, um, and not to mention a lame storyline. The most recent, Pearl Harbor, is just such a preposterous story. Got great Computer graphics, but that's about the end of it.
0: Wow! And they, the, the filmmakers never ask ask you and the other experts at the Smithsonian to weigh in and help them be accurate, or that doesn't happen, I guess.
1: Uh, we haven't had a request in a long time. Interesting. Interesting. Well we help when when they do ask. I mean, the the ones that do get it right, especially if it's a military movie, go to the Pentagon and get their assistance, and sometimes they can pull off a really fine, you know, technically fine movie. It won't go into the details of the plot or anything like that of any of these movies sure
0: uh, Well, we talked a little bit about
1: curators to look at a movie and they get you know the aircraft wrong but then it um, that used to really bother me a um, long time ago that sort of grew out of it when I realized yes it may be a wor- you know a movie about World War one and the airplanes are wrong but good luck finding a World War one bomber and that sort of thing so if you do a, a decent enough job trying to represent it then I'm fine with that yeah I yeah a big, big piece.
0: Well, we talked a little bit about what the future holds in terms of trying to create greener airplanes. But what about the the commercial uh, space uh, outfits that we're seeing now, like SpaceX and Virgin Galactic? Will those be displayed in the Smithsonian someday?
1: Uh, well, um, we have Spaceship One in our Milestones Gallery already. Uh, that was aircraft. See, I'm an to Aviation curator, so I know it's space. Right, right. That won the X Prize for uh, being able to go up to space and come back down and go back up again within two weeks. It's a harbinger of the Virgin uh, Galactic program done by uh, scale composites. Now, mind you, uh, they did that many, many years ago. And we're still waiting for the commercial version of that to happen because, you know, getting up into space is very difficult and uh doing so safely is very difficult, so there's a lot of technical problems that uh need to be overcome. I mean NASA did it forty fifty sixty years ago, and it's still sure. or, and still doing it, but you know it's still very, very risky, so
0: yeah. No, it's been fascinating to watch this new development and watch Elon Musk and his team. Well, you know, I wish them well, but uh, uh, it, they've had a lot of screw ups, it feels like. But but well, maybe I'm I'm being you know, too harsh. It,
1: yeah, his attitude about it is fine. It's like, oh, well, it's, it's not like I don't care. But it's like, oh, well, we just, you know, it didn't work. What did we learn from it? And how? To, right. and that's how engineers do it. You know, you don't yeah. want something to fail. You want to work great the first time out of the box. But you learn from your failures and then you go from there.
0: Earlier, no, you were saying a lot of rockets
1: blew up in the late fifties, early sixties before our space program got on got on track. Yeah,
0: and that's one of the reasons flying is so safe today. That we have learned from the mistakes we made in the past. To each aircraft, with the exception of the Boeing, uh, what was it, the seven, uh, the the Max, seven thirty seven Max, seven thirty seven Max, which well, had it's some major been approved
1: and yeah, uh, uh, because of all the rigorous inspection now and uh, the redesign and all that. That's probably going to be the safest airplane in the skies because no one can afford to have that to have another problem again.
0: Right, right. Well, they spent a year getting it back to to where it should have been when it was first launched. but um, um, Longer, but uh, and it's still not. Yeah.
1: But I think of course, it, the industry's not back either. <laughs>
0: right. So it's hard to know. So. You talked earlier about the fact that one of the galleries is your baby. Tell us what's in that gallery, and what is the one thing you think too many visitors miss when they when they visit that that's really really cool and interesting to see.
1: Oh, cool! Well, we have, you know, the we've got the 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 big icons as I mentioned the the Wright Wright brothers 1903 flyer. Sure, we have the Wrights. Um, well, we actually have the world's first military airplane, the Wrights' uh, uh, military flyer from 1908, 1909. Um, we also have a 1911 Wright aircraft, and there are four Wright aircraft left. We have three of them. That's that's pretty wow. special. We have the yeah. Spirit of St. Louis. They're all the real thing. There are a lot of you know replicas of the Wright aircraft and the Spirit of St. Louis all over the country, but we have the real thing, and that's that's what's really cool. Oh, we have so many airplanes. Uh, we have a spectacular <laughs> World War II collection. We were very fortunate that after World War II, uh, General of the Air Force Army Air Forces Henry Hap Arnold put aside some 97 aircraft mm-hmm. for us, both American and um, aircraft that the Air Force had captured. So we have wow. we have you know wonderful U.S. collection. But on top of that, we have hands down the best collection of German and Japanese World War II aircraft in the world.
0: It's an incredible collection. Thank you so much, Bob, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show.
1: Well, you're quite welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Our next guest is Linda Watanabe McFerrin, who is the editor, along with Joanna Bigger, of a wonderful new compilation of essays and poems and thoughts about Greece. It's a book that's called Wandering in Greece, Athens, Islands, and Antiquities, And it's part of a series that's really terrific. All right, here comes Linda. Apologies, there are some strange sound things going on, but I think you'll like it anyway. So welcome to the Frommer Travel Show, Linda.
2: Thank you, Pauline.
0: It's great to be here. Well, I have to say... uh, Your book, uh, which for anybody, well, actually, you know, I'm so used to on radio saying for anybody tuning in late, but on a podcast, people just listen, so I don't have to say that. But your book, Wandering in Greece, seems like the perfect book for this moment because it's both very philosophical. It's about how to live your best life. And it's about travel, something that we can't do right now. I, I can't imagine a better time for this to come out.
2: Well, thank you. I actually can't think of a better time for any travel book than now, since we're all sort of trapped in our homes for one reason or another. You can't do one of the things that many of us love to do, which is go from place to place. I do think it's the perfect book for the Times, though, because it does have a lot of stories in it. A lot of the stories in it are really lessons for today.
0: And how did you get the people who wrote the the book? I mean, it has, I should say, the book has a number of contributors. Some contribute poems, which I thought was just marvelous. So it's such a different thing to encounter in a travel book. Others, it's more travel memoir style. But, but how did you find all of your wanderers?
2: So this is a travel anthology that is part of a seven book series so far. Every so often we'll get a bunch of travelers to and and riders and we'll put out a call and see who wants to join us on a trip and the whole point of the trip is to go to a country to explore it from the point of from a particular point of view that's special to the individual. And um, find the story. We do a week of travel. You find your story. You write your story in that week. So it's it's really an adventure for all of us when we're on the road, not just for ourselves, but because we're, we're with a great group of writers. So we put out a call at the very beginning and see who wants to come. And as I said, seventh book in the series, our next trip, which was scheduled for this year, was Namibia. Uh, we had wow. to cancel that. But everybody's kind of in a holding pattern because we do hope to go to yeah. New next year.
0: Ah, oh, how great. I never would have guessed that because, I mean, the quality of the writing is is wonderful. It's really quite high. And you start, of course, with the brilliant Phil Cousineau, who writes at the, B- or he quotes, and I'm going to mess. you know, I've never known how to pronounce Percy Bish Shelley. Is that how yeah. you pronounce yeah. the, the poet's name?
2: Percy
0: Biss Shelley. Biss. So he quotes Percy Biss Shelley in saying, We are all Greeks. Our laws, our literature, our religion, our arts have their root in Greece. And you feel that when you're reading the book, because in many ways it's a philosophical journey. How does that play out, do you feel? Of all these stories, what is the one that you think where this kind of ethos plays out most fully?
2: So I would say that Greece, the Percy Bysshe Shelley quote, although it does make one feel like one's lisping, is um, <laughs> is uh, perfect because it. when you look at the stories, one of the things that did come to mind as soon as we looked at the anthology, and certainly as soon as Phil looked at it after it was all put together, was that um, there are so many aspects of Greek culture that are part of our culture today. We do find that in most of the countries that we visit, but this one in particular, and I could name a number of them. I mean, the Greeks have affected us in terms of language, our alphabet, our literature, especially there in the literature, because travel literature basically for me begins with the Iliad and the Odyssey, so later the Aeneid. I mean, they were the beginners of that kind of travel literature. In the science, I, I was just surprised when we read uh, Tom's story when it first came in, because he, he, along with many others, had visited the uh, Museum of Ancient Greek Technology, and we discovered yeah. that the Greeks had robots. Um, there's medicine in it, philosophy, the, the whole golden mean idea, and the Zorba and Epicurean sort of balance between the two. Well, before we leave the Museum of
0: Technology, yeah, that was one of my favorite chapters because the Greeks had pretty sophisticated technology, and it's something we never think about for them. They actually did have a form of robot. They, they created the catapult. Uh, they created, was it piston engines? or yeah. uh, it was a uh, remarkable and yet we never think of the greeks in that way
2: yes pneumat- pneumatics metallurgy engineering all of these things came from the greeks and as i said even even robots they had hydraulic alarm clocks we don't think of them in that way but Aristotle a long time ago said that uh back in in the ages of Greece really felt that technology imitates nature and it's in fact it seems a little ironic that a region that believed in the gods and mythology yeah. could be so scientific it seems antithetical but in fact they were they were the beginning of um part of the beginning of modern science so we were fascinated the way Tom delved into that we found that yeah Wonderful. They actually have two technological museums in in Athens. And Tom was very, very funny about saying that it was a little like a Starbucks today that they'd also found a way to reproduce themselves.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, that was charming. And speaking of the gods, one of the writers tried to go, well, did participate in a ceremony. I had no idea this even existed. There are modern Greeks who are worshipping the ancient Greek gods. They don't call themselves pagans. They call them Hellenists. That was absolutely mind-blowing because as your writer says in the book, when you read the Greek myths, it's kind of hard to think of people worshipping these gods because in so many ways they're just as petty and childish often and irrational as human beings are. And it's such a different way to look at the human divinity relationship.
2: And yet it's going on
0: still today.
2: And it's not surprising because they have, the Greeks have a history of being able to balance both sides. And that is part of the balance, that they can be scientific and mystical at the same time. In fact, mystery religions around Dionysus and others have been a really huge. Part of Greek history, and we need to remember that. And when we say that we are we are all Greeks, the the whole concept of the gods and what they stand for and the mysteries behind them are the basis of a lot of modern psychology. Jungian mm. psychology has a lot to do with those those archetypal figures that are first delineated for us in Greek culture and in Greek stories, and Ovid, and in others. Um, so. It's not surprising that we find the, the the juxtaposition of what seem like two opposites in that country, right. and I think there's a lesson that we can learn from that. And the Greeks were always about the golden mean that between the two extremes exists a a, a, a calm space or a or a sensible space, a moral space, if you will. So. Hmm. We, we found that it it just took us deeper and deeper into philosophy, both of the Greek, in the Greek culture and in our own.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Add some of the other subjects that your writers explored. I loved the chapter on Icaria, which is uh, a Greek island that was named for Icarus, who as a young man flew too close to the sun. He was escaping imprisonment and he had these wings created by his father, but held together by wax. And dad said, don't go too near the sun, but he did. But today... Icaria is the place people go to get very old and do that successfully. Fascinating. And so your writer went there to learn why people live so long on Icaria. What
2: did she find out? Well, Sandra Bracken was the writer that decided to do that. And one of the things, it was interesting because her her story, which is a wonderful story and full of heart, she follows the, their dining experiences. They eat very sensibly. Again, the golden mead thing. They eat very fresh food, food from the sea. So part of it is eating, but a very large part of it, which was sort of unexpected, and she comes to this conclusion somewhere toward the end of the of the essay, is that a big part of it is community. And on this island, there's a lot of interaction between people, a lot of love. And that's one of the factors that we don't really consider that much. Of course, you know, eating right, exercising, it's a mountainous terrain, so there's a lot of exercise. All of those things we consider. But especially at this time of COVID, the the importance of... Community and interaction and how much that really has to do with a person's mental health and how people that are locked away in, um, in centers or separated from their family in some way or another, how, what, how detrimental that can be. Yeah. And
0: there's a beautiful story in it about a man who was he he was an immigrant to the United States. I think he he went there to study, if I'm remembering correctly. And then at the age of 60, raised a family there, stayed in the United States. At the sixth, at the age of 60, he's given a terrible death sentence by a doctor who says right. you have inoperable cancer. You're going to die soon. And so he goes back to Ikaria because he knows it'll be cheaper to get buried there and he doesn't want to burden his wife. <laughs> And he lives for another 40 years. <laughs> he dies at the age of 101. It made me want to move to Ikaria, I gotta well, say.
2: You know, it's interesting because I was reading, a, a, I think it was a post that you had done or a, a report that you had done about the places people most want to live in the world where they yes. want to locate. And one of the places was Japan. And people live for a long time in many parts of Japan. And again, just in the same, and in fact, a lot of people in various countries would like to, you know, relocate to Japan. And it's the same thing as, as the feeling that people have, as Sandra had when she went to Ikaria, which is the sense of community and that people help one another. And there's, we, we downplay the importance of others in our lives and uh, of goodwill in our lives. Hmm. And I, I think that, I think that that, that story is a window into how helpful that is and how important that is for us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there was one about the island of Corfu. And and in all great ideas, there should be the opposite. And so I love the fact that in this book, you start with, we are all Greeks, and yet she goes to Corfu and finds it's not very Greek at all.
2: Well, isn't Corfu historically I mean, it's the island that people always go to to get away. I, we were, I was watching that Lawrence Durrell series about Corfu, the Durrells in Corfu. And mm. um, it's where all the Europeans go to live. So, yes, in some ways, it's not very Greek at all. But they go there because of the Greekness of it. So that's sort of ironic. I right. think. Um, it's a beautiful island and a great place to sometimes... Travelers can transform a place, and I think this has happened to a degree on Corfu because of its popularity, because it's been written about and sung about for so long. Yeah, I I, I think you could find that on a number of islands. When we were sure. going through, when we were writing our book, we tried to have the writers spread out. They sort of did that naturally, as they always do when we go to a place. And the book really takes you from Pelas in the north, Macedonia, to Crete. So it was really Exciting to see how far flung our stories became. And what we did discover is that a, an island country like Greece, especially, there are so many different identities for each of these islands. But, um, the core beliefs are, um, are very, very weak. Yeah.
0: Well and also Corfu she made the point was also invaded over and over and over and so uh the uh different cultures that ruled it through the centuries also left their mark which I thought was fascinating and I loved the fact that she wove in the story of Princess Alice who for those of us who watched the Crown yes. uh, he he was she was the mother of Prince Philip and there was one episode I think in the maybe the second season, devoted to Princess Alice visiting her son, learning more about her. Uh, That's what I liked about this book. You know, so much travel writing, a lot of it's about a sense of place, which it has to be. It's about the place. But your folks really also wove in the stories of different individuals, which gave it a, a really lovely texture, I thought.
2: Well, all our books are really quirky. So what the, what the writers do is they propose their stories to us at the beginning as the editors. Um, Joanna and I edit the book together and we've been a team for a long time and really know how to work well together. So they'll propose their stories to us and we'll, you know, we'll say, hmm, yeah, that sounds like a good story. How are you going di- to develop it? So it's very much as if you were writing for a magazine and had a magazine assignment and you were proposing something. And then we'll ask them certain things about it. And then when they go off to write their stories, always exciting to us to see what they come back with. Because they don't just come back with the, you go here, you see this, you see that. They come back with their own really super personal vision of that particular country. And we like to think that the books are simply an introduction and a, and a suggestion to people about how to go to a country and really, really uh, absorb what is important to you and learn more about it when you go there.
0: Well, Linda, it's a delightful book for anybody who wants to get it. Uh, it's called Wandering in Greece, Athens, Islands, and Antiquities. Thank you so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show, Linda.
2: It was great talking with you, Pauline. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Frommer
0: Travel Show. Don't forget, watch Fromers.com for our big article. Hopefully we'll see you next week. Ciao
1: the table, lazy afternoons in your sweatpants, watching cable.
2: Hey Bob, thank you for appearing on the Fromer Travel show.
1: You're quite welcome. Happy to be here.
0: So, uh for those listening in, here's how this interview is going to go. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on at the Smithsonian right now, and then I'm going to ask some burning questions that actually Fromer's readers prepared for Bob. I went onto social media. I went onto Twitter. You can follow us at @Fromers Asked what people wanted to know, and I got a bunch of great questions for them. But let's start first with the Smithsonian. Right now, the museum is
1: closed uh, for a variety of reasons, actually. Obviously, COVID-19 has closed everything for health reasons. But the downtown museum has been closed for about a year or so. Our Hazi uh, Museum out at Dulles Airport has been open, which is great. Uh, but the downtown museum has been closed because we are completely rebuilding it from the inside out. It was a 40-year-old building, and as we used to j- joke, it was built on time and under budget, which meant the ceiling <laughs> leaked, and a lot of the mechanicals didn't work as well as they could have. But, you know, it came in on time and under budget, and, you know, you get what you pay for. Anyway, right. I love the building. I spent my entire career there. I love it dearly, but yes, the ceiling leaked and among other things. So, we got two processes going on downtown. One is called revitalization when we were completely repairing and enhancing the building. You know, 21st century glass that will block all the ultraviolet lights, a new and improved HVAC system, oh. obviously fixing the leaks, uh we're completely recladding the building in in marble. Um, the old mark- Will
0: the exhibitions be very different to oh, you no, know what people experience?
1: The exhibitions that's that's the second part of the of the project. Revitalization fixes the building, mm-hmm. and, but we what we call transformation is going to either rehab or completely uh, create new exhibits in our 22 exhibition halls. The wow. old favorites will be back, you know, um Milestones will be there. Uh, America by Air will be there. That's my gallery. Uh, the Wright Brothers will be there, all of which will be reinterpreted. And then we have a whole host of new, well, we got a World War One and World War Two gallery, but that'd be reinterpreted, new exhibits, new aircraft. Uh, same with our space side. Just It's going to be very, very nice. Apollo 11 gets its very own gallery now.
0: And let me just say to all our listeners, there is construction going on in my apartment building. <laughs> it's it's a work from home time. So if that's what you're hearing in the background, I'm hoping it. I don't think it sounds too bad. But I just it's it's not something inside your brain as you're listening to this podcast. It's actually in the air here. Well,
1: I have so, to. Give, sorry, Bob. No, no. I, I also have to warn them. That <laughs> I've got construction going on in front of my house. They're digging up my street, <laughs> putting down new storm drains, and they've been doing that for a yeah. month now. And they start at seven o'clock in the morning with the. Echo. Oh,
0: my so, goodness. Well, we got to be happy that people are working. That's absolutely. not a given and, these know, days. Um, so, yes. When it rains
1: from now on, uh, my street won't be flooded. And I can't argue wrong. Yay. All
0: right. I want to get to some of the questions that okay. our followers on social media gave us. What do you think was the most influential aviation innovation? And do you have that on display?
1: Ooh, um know that's no, that's, that's a broad question. It's very yeah. broad. There's not one innovation. Obviously, the most important was the was the invention of the airplane, and that's the Wright brothers. Sure. And we have their very first airplane on display, the 1903 Wright Flyer. wasn't a very good airplane, <laughs> but it worked. It flew, and they you know, they flew under control. That was the key to the to the problem. They solved the problem. It took them only four years to solve it, a problem that you know very well educated people tried hard for decades to solve and couldn't do it. Sure. And these.
0: When you say it wasn't a very good airplane, does that mean it's hard to uh, conserve? Uh, what was it made of? What what were the materials?
1: Oh, it's made out of wooden wood and um, cotton fabric. I mean. That- the next 20 30 years most aircraft were built that way it just uh, didn't fly all that well it was underpowered and uh, the aerodynamics weren't really great they fixed it by right. 1905 when they built the 1905 flyer which we do not own that's in Dayton Ohio it could fly until it ran out of gas and you know, wow. that's a true remarkable benchmark that, it doesn't sound so impressive but you know they could take it off and just fly right left go wherever they wanted to until they ran out of gas. That's phenomenal. That was 19. Well,
0: speaking of running out of, yeah, speaking of running out of gas, what, I mean, now is the time when we want to be burning far less fossil fuels. So we did get a, a question. What does the future hold, do you think, in terms of renewable energies, in terms of different technologies to make flying a greener process?
1: That's another really good question. Um,
0: <laughs> we have smart we have smart followers. Yes, I'm I know that there are a
1: lot of uh, people actively looking into that, particularly alternative fuels, uh, particularly um, electric energy. The problem is, if you wish to move large numbers of people long distances and uh, do so affordably, right now the current generation of fossil fuels is the best way of doing it Uh, i'm not saying it's the cleanest way but if you if you're trying to move 200 300 people at a time you know, 6,000 miles, 3,000 miles, 10, 15,000 miles. The current version of um, subsonic jets is the most efficient way of doing it. I you had know? heard
0: oh, that sorry? there was a plane, I had heard there was an experimental plane, I think it was out of one of the German universities that did manage to run on solar power. I mean, it was a tiny plane and it didn't go that far. Uh, but how, uh, but I think the problem was the weight of the machines that allowed. It allowed it to run on solar power was so heavy uh, that, that it had to be small and, and couldn't go that far.
1: At present, um, there, there are two significant problems with using uh, solar power for aircraft. One is they have to turn propellers. And uh, by that very nature, that limits their speed. Um, a, a modern jet flies between 500 and 600 miles an hour. Propeller driven aircraft are limited by aerodynamics to about 400 450 miles an hour and the electrical powered aircraft have so far have not come anywhere close to that. The other thing is they have to carry a, um, a sizable load, a payload, basically in this case, passengers or cargo, uh, Right. and in aircraft design, unlike the design of, well, it's, it, it's true for anything you design as well, but it's, it's critical in aircraft and that is weight. And the problem with solar power or battery, uh, powered aircraft is the weight of either the solar panels or of the batteries. And uh, batteries are very heavy. And the solar power mm. part is heavy as well. So you got to deal with that. You also have to make a structure large enough, especially solar power, that generate enough electricity to drive the motors with sufficient power to carry a payload and carry it. Yes, you you know, as long as the sun's out, you have unlimited power, Then, but then how do you fly at night? Right. Sure. Requires batteries. Batteries mean weight. And as I said before, weight is the enemy of all aircraft.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. What about looking at some of the things that are are done as a standard now? I got one uh, question, which just made me laugh out loud. They said, why are flight attendants still announcing how to use the seatbelt at the beginning of the uh, of their speech? Because at that point, everybody has their seatbelt on uh, and it's not that hard to use. Why do they do that still?
1: Well, one, it's the law. They have to make these announcements. And I'm sure that on every flight, there are people who still don't know how to do it or don't care to do it. And it's, <laughs> uh, um, it's a legal requirement. And it's also um, a, just a, a smart thing to do to remind people to do it. And those who are, aren't paying attention. And as you look around a cabin, most people are not paying attention, which by the way, drives flight attendants crazy because their purpose to be in that cabin is to keep you safe. And if you're not paying attention, you're not, you're not helping them in the least and they're doing it for you, but it's, uh, well, no, but here um, it, it Some people just they don't know how. Right, right.
0: I mean, uh, for me, the personal thing that I always do is I always count the number of seats between myself and the emergency exit, just in case there was some kind of emergency and I needed to feel my way out of the plane. That's that's what I do. I don't know. Is that is that just me being superstitious or is that a
2: good idea?
1: Well, actually, that's you being smart. And I think most of the passengers don't do that. If you listen to the announcements, they say, you know, please find, you know, the nearest exit and look behind you because that nearest exit actually may be behind you. And, yeah, in the case what you're doing, uh, counting the number of rows, if the lights go out, it's at night, the airplane goes down, uh, it's, it's you know, there's, there's smoke in the cabin. You can't see anything. You'll be able to count how many rows till you get to this. That's very smart. I hate well, aren't well, <laughs> paying attention and they should. Absolutely. Down.
0: All right. Another question, and this one comes from me. I remember, I'm a, I'm a mother, and, so, and I'm also a travel writer, so my kids have traveled a lot. And when the younger one was maybe four or five, she said that she wanted to go to the bathroom all alone uh, in the plane. And I thought, okay, I'll let her go to the bathroom. Uh, she comes screaming out of the bathroom because the flushing toilet was so insanely loud. Why does it have to be that loud? It it terrified her. And I and I've noticed that it just it just it's almost like an explosion in there. Sometimes the sound of it.
1: Uh, What you're hearing is 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 vacuum. It's suction. Uh, It's a yes, it's a toilet, but it's not one like you have at home. It's got a bowl, but the bowl is not full of water. I mean, last thing you want on an airplane is, you know, water sitting there sloshing around and spilling out. So um, the bowl's there and all that. Uh, once you do your business, you hit the you, you flush it. A valve opens, a flap opens, and it is literally sucks by vacuum out from the bowl of the toilet into a storage tank.
0: Is the storage tank very far away? Is that why it has to be such a great force to pull pull everything out?
1: Well, it, it has to have, it, it has to be strong enough to remove the waste and you know where the tank is there are usually you know restrooms in in front of the airplane in the back of the airplane sometimes in the middle of the airplane So it has to be, you know, uh, strong enough to uh, pull it from wherever the airplane, wherever the toilet is on the airplane.
0: Right. Well, staying in the toilet. Not that we want to do that for this whole (laughs) conversation. (laughs) But you, the reason I found out about you was you had a a column, or you were asked a question in the recent Smithsonian Magazine about why there are still ashtrays in some planes in the toilet area when that's been illegal to, to smoke on board a plane for so a lot.
1: Well, just because it's illegal doesn't mean people don't try to do it. Now, they can't get away with it inside the cabin because the flight attendant's eyes are watching. So some people think they're very clever. They'll go, go to the bathroom and light up a cigarette. Well, that sends off alarms and they get found almost immediately, but they don't seem to think that's going to happen. But once you do that, you got to put the cigarette out somewhere. So that's why that's there. So they it so it's still there. there. Yeah,
0: for the people breaking the rules, they're they're.
1: <laughs> well, you can't well, put right. it out anywhere because you know you're in an airplane, and uh, the last sure. thing you want is an open flame in the airplane. Right, that's true.
0: All right, well, we got one also from a movie buff. Apparently, uh, they asked you to weigh in on which movie has the best or most accurate representation of somebody being a pilot.
1: Oh, gosh. Well, this is an older movie, and I say this because of my professional interest, but Jimmy Stewart's uh, Spirit of St. Louis uh, really conveys very, very well what it was like for Charles Lindbergh to fly across the Atlantic in 1927. The problem is most aviation movies aren't very good. I hate to say it.
0: What do they get wrong? What do they tend oh, to Oh, you name up? it.
1: You know, they get the, you know, it's usually the story's preposterous or just, you know, it's not the airplane problem. It's uh, getting the accuracy problem. There's, well, I won't call out a movie by name. There's one that's that's dreadful. Actually, there are multiple ones. Oh, so. call
0: it out. Call it out. You can't get in
1: trouble. Yeah, well, the original Midway was terrible in that they kept mixing. Well, they were looking for different footage, and um, this is supposed to be June 1942, and they had aircraft from the 1960s and 1950s. Uh, Mm. All mixed in. They had, it's a Navy story, but they had uh, Air Force aircraft in there. They had jets in there at a time when there were no jets. Um, And not to mention a lame storyline. The most recent Pearl Harbor is just such a preposterous story. Got great computer graphics, but that's about the end of it.
0: Wow. And they, the, the filmmakers never ask ask you and other experts at the Smithsonian to weigh in and help them be accurate? Or that doesn't happen, I guess.
1: Uh, we haven't had a request in a long time. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we help when, when they do ask. I mean, the, the ones that do get it right, especially if it's a military movie, go to the Pentagon and get their assistance. And sometimes they can pull off a really fine, you know, technically fine movie. It won't, go into the details of the plot or anything like that of any of these movies. Sure.
0: Well we talked a little bit about
1: curators to look at a movie and they get, you know, the aircraft wrong, but then it um, that used to really bother me a um, long time ago. <laughs> and that sort of grew out of it when I realized, yes, it may be war you know, a movie about World War 1 and the airplanes are wrong, but good luck finding a World War 1 bomber and that sort of thing. So if you do a, a decent enough job trying to represent it, then I'm fine with that. Yeah. I
0: well, we talked a little bit about what the future holds in terms of trying to create greener airplanes. But what about the the commercial uh, space uh, outfits that we're seeing now, like SpaceX and Virgin Galactic? Will those be displayed in the Smithsonian someday?
1: Uh, well, um, we have Spaceship One in our milestones gallery already. Uh, that was the aircraft. See, I'm an air. Aviation curator, so I know it's space. Right, right. um, (laughs) Right. That won the X Prize for uh, being able to go up to space and come back down and go back up again within two weeks. It's a harbinger of the Virgin uh, Galactic program done by uh, scale composites. Now, mind you, uh, they did that many, many years ago. And we're still waiting for uh, the commercial version of that to happen because, you know, getting up into space is very difficult and uh doing so safely is very difficult. So there's a lot of technical problems that uh, need to be overcome. I mean, NASA did it forty, fifty, sixty years ago and it's still work sure. and still doing it, but you know, it's still very, very risky. So
0: yeah. No, it's been fascinating to watch this new development and watch Elon Musk and his team. you know, I wish them well, but uh, uh, they've had a lot of screw-ups it feels like, but but well, maybe I'm I'm being you know, too it, harsh. It,
1: yeah, his attitude about it's fine. It's like, "Oh well, it's, it's not like I don't care, but it's like, oh well, we just, you know, it didn't work. What did we learn from it and how to, right. and that's how engineers do it. You know, you don't yeah. want something to fail. You want it to work great the first time out of the box, but you learn from your failures and then you go from there.
0: Earlier, you were saying a lot of saying, rockets
1: blew up in the late fifties, early sixties before our space program got on got on track. Yeah,
0: and that's one of the reasons flying is so safe today that we have learned from the mistakes we made in the past. To each aircraft, with the exception of the Boeing, uh, what was it, the seven, uh, the the Max, thirty seven uh, Max, seven thirty seven Max, which well, had it's some major been
1: approved and yeah, uh, uh, because of all the rigorous inspection now. And uh, the redesign and all that—that's probably going to be the safest airplane in the skies because no one can afford to have that have another problem again.
0: Right, right. Well, they spent a year getting it back to to where it should have been when it was first launched, but um, longer. But uh, and it's still not. Yeah, but I think of course the industry's not back either. <laughs> right. So it's hard to know. So. You talked earlier about the fact that one of the galleries is your baby. Tell us what's in that gallery and what is the one thing you think too many visitors miss when they when they visit that that's really really cool and interesting to see.
1: Oh, cool. Well, we have, you know, the we've got the 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 big icons as I mentioned the the right wright brothers 1903 flyer she sure. had the rights um well we actually have the world's first military airplane the rights uh, uh, military flyer from 1908 1909 um we also have a 1911 Wright aircraft and there are four Wright aircraft left we have three of them that's that's pretty wow. special we have limited yeah. spirit of st louis they're all the real thing there are a lot of you know replicas of the right aircraft and the Spirit of St. Louis all over the country, but we have the real thing, and that's that's what's really cool. Oh, we have so many airplanes. Uh, <laughs> we have a spectacular World War II collection. We were very fortunate that after World War II, uh, General of the Air Force Army Air Forces Henry Hap Arnold put aside some ninety seven aircraft mm. for us, both American and um, aircraft that the Air Force had captured. So we have wow. we have you know wonderful U.S. collection, but On top of that, we have hands down the best collection of German and Japanese World War II aircraft in the world.
0: It's an incredible collection. Thank you so much,
2: Bob, for appearing on the Frommer Travel
1: Show. Well, you're quite welcome. Thank you for having me.